Welcome back to What's Left of Philosophy. I'm Will. Here with me today is Owen. Hey. Gil. Hello. And Lily. Hi. Today we're reading select chapters from Eric Olenreich's 2010 book, Envisioning Real Utopias. Specifically, for those of you keeping track at home, we're reading chapter one, Why Real Utopias, chapter two, The Tasks of Emancipatory Social Science, chapter four, Thinking About Alternatives to Capitalism, and finally, chapter eight, Elements of a Theory of Transformation. For those of you who do not know Eric Olin Wright, he was a longtime professor of sociology at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. He was a Marxist who worked in a tradition known as analytical Marxism. At least one crucial aspect of this tradition was the thinking that certain aspects of Marx's theory of social change, historical development, have been compromised and would need to be rethought with analytical tools in contemporary social science. Envisioning real utopias finds right bringing social science together with the category of utopia in order to outline how we understand social transformation to occur. Wright says around page 290, quote, one of the central tasks of emancipatory social science is to try to understand the contradictions, limits, and gaps in the system of reproduction, which opens up spaces for transformative strategies, end quote. Utopias for Wright are neither fantastical nor literary. They offer both diagnostic criteria, the failings of our present society, and anticipatory principles for the world we'd like to build. In this episode, I'd like you know, to begin our conversation with you know, you know, trying to uh, break down what we think the interplay between diagnosis and anticipation should be for critical theory and social philosophy. I think this presents rich opportunities for discussion for us. Wright's book demands that we not only say what we think is wrong or unjust or where we would like to go, and I believe there's some consensus amongst the, the cohort here uh, that we'd like to see more social socialism, less capitalism. But theory, I know, this is shocking for those of you just joining us. Like, turns out, you know, we're, we're not libertarians or anything like that. But theory ought to account for how it envisions social transformations to occur. Is it through rupture? Is it through building power outside the state? Or might it be through collaborating with the state? I imagine there actually might not be consensus amongst us on these questions. So I look forward to digging into our expectations of theory, our visions of social transformation, and our diagnoses of our current ills with you all. And with that, I will stop my introduction there and see where you all would like to go first. So I'd like to talk about why he's calling it envisioning real utopias. So part of the project of this book is to like fill a gap in Marxist historical thought, but also just to kind of spin the dial on the way that Marxists have historically thought about social change. So we can talk about what he thinks is wrong with the classical theory of history. Um, but more specifically, like he thinks that there's a way in which socialists don't think about this in the right way. And there needs to be some energy put put into the the planning, the uh, looking for the openings and the possibilities. And this isn't something that Marxists have usually been good at. Like normally there's this kind of idea that like in struggle, it'll just happen and the system will, will collapse. And in the rub the rubble will emerge these people who get educated in their struggle and then they can build the new, new society. And he thinks that this isn't sufficient and he wants us to still engage in like, you know, utopian thinking, but he wants us to do it in like a, a particular way and embrace what he calls like the tension between dreams and practice. So I guess I'd like to maybe start there. Like, do you guys see the gap he's trying to fill or the problem that he's trying to trying to get at? Yeah, <clears throat> I find something like really refreshing about his willingness to place that anticipatory dimension like at the core of his analyses. And you see it in other formulations, right? You have real utopias, which brings those two kind of heterogeneous elements together, but you also have the idea of what he calls emancipatory social sciences, right? And the idea of like fusing the normative on the one hand with the descriptive and the analytical uh, on the other hand. And there's just, when I say it's refreshing, it's because I, I a lot of 20th century uh, social theory is, and I think this has to do with the presence of the, you know, the Soviet Union and the, you know, the catastrophes of Stalinism, 
there is just a real hesitance if you look at figures in the Frankfurt School or you look at Foucault, there's just a very deep hesitation about outlining what, you know, what a future trajectory might look like or what possi concrete possibilities there might be. And he's willing to get concrete, like very specific. And that's where he draws on the social sciences, right? Like to get very specific about the kinds of institutions, social processes, forms of, you know, collective action that might, that might make that possible. Yeah, and I think you know, um, the you know the the build on top of that. I think also what he sees wrong here, and and you all can correct me if I'm I'm wrong about this, but I think that he has an explicit hesitancy towards the notion of what he calls ruptural transformation, at least mm -hmm. a singular focus on it, because his issue is well. What social theory has to answer is, well, how do we start to build those new institutions that are supposed to replace the old? And we can't just be on autopilot here and think something, something, class struggle, something, something, smash the state <laughs> and new stuff. No. And, you know, he's like, well, look at history. Step three, question mark, step four, profit. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Or you could do the meme of, you know, this hasn't worked out for other people, but for us, maybe. maybe. For us, yeah. <laughs> you know, um, and he's like, well, look at history. A lot of examples of attempts at ruptural transformations, you know, and I, I've thought about this a lot. Often people who are leading revolutions are poor people to reconstruct the world afterwards. Um, and, you know, you look at those and either those institutions didn't change as much as you thought they were, would, or then, you know, the, the ruptural transformation was morally compromised and it didn't lead to, you know, this new uh, state of social emancipation. And so he actually wants to say, well, theory needs to start actually trying to account for in the nitty gritty details of, so what are the strategies we're looking for that will allow us to build the world we'd like to see? Yeah, I thought, so like one of the, the end of chapter eight, which is the one elements for a theory of transformation, he outlines these three different sort of broad kind of strategic formations, I think I would say, for trying to bring about some kind of change in the social structure. I love this set of distinctions. I think it's really helpful, right? So the one that you already mentioned is this ruptural, uh, this ruptural vision, right? Which is what we get with the sort of classic Marxist-Leninist, uh, you know, working class political party that's going to attempt to seize the state by violence if need be. And it's sort of governing metaphors are war, right? And conquest and victory against the state. The second is what he calls interstitial. And this is a much more kind of like anarchist. The point isn't to confront the state directly or to, to combat it, to defeat it, but to sort of build power wherever there is not capitalist and state power, right? And so to try to, try to build the new sort of social relations like in like these cracks or interstices, because he thinks, I, correctly, I believe, that capitalist power is not total in the sense that, like, you know, the entire social field is completely dominated by and governed by, you know, capitalist logics and articulation. So wherever there's an opportunity for counter-hegemonic practices to form, this is what the work of interstitial organizing does. And then the third he articulates is this sort of symbiotic relationship with the state, right? This is our social democrats who, you know, want to use the existing mechanisms of the state to try to, you know, get some good reforms on the table. And what I like so much about his analysis, because I think you're totally right, too, that he's very skeptical of this ruptural move, right? He's very skeptical of the kind of revolutionary, clean break, seize the state by violence approach. But he does seem to me to, like, want to suggest that, like, all three of these have their, their ups and downs. They've all got their sort of limits and logics. And and an adequate theory of transformation is one that tries to take all of them seriously, right? Not a priori privileging anyone, not ruling any of them out. And it was very interesting for me, at least, to see this sort of, you know, quite committed, I think, Marxist in this analytic tradition, have a kind of openness to the possibilities that are available to us through social democratic reform, right? With the state, not necessarily against or outside it. I just thought that that was a kind of very, like, I don't know, capacious and, like, open-minded way of framing what's going on in these organizations. Yeah, I think there's a, a with and against the state dynamic for, for right. Like, I, I think that there is a part of where he's coming from is he's reflecting on some of the experiences of, like, Eurocommunism and the social democratic experience in Europe and also in South America. And he's trying to take seriously what they're up against. And I think that one of the problems with 
people who usually pledge allegiance to the rupture socialist ideal is that they don't take those things seriously. And what replaces a serious analysis of constraints under capitalism becomes a voluntarist idea that if the right people were just with the right will were in the right position to make the transition, and then the, the problem ends up being the lack of the right vision and the lack of the will of the people who were in that situation. And now I want to kind of be clear that I actually am a rupture socialist, but I, I just don't think about it in the way that I used to. Like, I think that when pushed to take social democracy seriously or mm. the attempts at social democracy in places like Venezuela or Bolivia or Brazil or like, you know, the sort of pink tide countries, I think that you're confronted with people that really deeply understood the contradictions that they were living in and the choices that they make to preserve the system makes sense. So like, right, is because he's a social scientist, you know, he's looking at the configuration of the cohort of people in, like, who are heading up social democratic parties in the 80s. And this is when social democracy like lost it. You know, it was like they couldn't push through the reforms. And, you know, somebody like uh, Francois Mitterrand in, in France, like he had this whole like communist program and couldn't implement any of it and took this wild neoliberal turn. Wright is in a position where he is looking at this stuff and he's like, you can just say that he betrayed the working class, Mitterrand, or you can take the pressures he was under seriously. And that, so that's what's pushing him in the direction of being skeptical of rupture. But I, the reason I'm saying all this is like, I think if you're like me, like if you're somebody who's like, I don't want to give up the rupture, I think mm. you don't have to. But I think Wright is challenging you to think about it in a way that is not like evasive, basically. Yeah, maybe it's helpful to to look at the distinction he makes between these two ways of looking at trying to undermine capitalism, right? Because he makes, the, the, on the one hand, you have the model of smashing capitalism. And he talks about that in the text. He talks about it, you know, if you look at some of his lectures, he comes back to this idea of smashing capitalism. And it's not like he's just overtly hostile to the, the kind of smashing model. Uh, it's that he has some real hesit hesitancies about it. And interestingly... Sorry, uh, well, wait, let me first say the other uh, alternative to smashing capitalism, which is eroding capitalism. Right? And so like eroding capitalism has, is a much more gradual process. It, it engages, like you said, Gil, all of these different kinds of strategies, you know, a number of different strategies, some that are interstitial. Um, some that are uh, escapist even, right? He talks about these kinds of escapist communes and try to just get away from the state. Uh, but interestingly, though, his problem with the smashing capitalism model is that not, it's not just its, uh, its feasibility, right? There's a feasibility argument about smashing capitalism uh, that you hear very often, mm -hmm. which is that, well, it's just not, it's too deeply entrenched or, you know, the, the obstacles are too great to do that. State's uh, too he, powerful. Exactly. Mm -hmm. But he makes a desirability argument against smashing, yeah. uh, against this model of like smashing, or which is, I guess, adjacent to this rupture idea. Uh, and the desirability argument there, he does tie it to the kind of authoritarian socialism gone wrong uh, issue, right? Says so the issue when you when you just try to smash, right? You and everything happens really quickly, and you try to almost take a shortcut towards revolutionary socialism, you end up because of all of the pressures that come down on a group or a country that tries to do that, pressures of the international capitalist order, you end up being basically forced into very kind of quick authoritarian measures. There's no time for democratic processes to guide that, to guide those political movements because they've happened so rapidly and the forces against them have organized and you know consolidated so rapidly in response that you end up with authoritarianism. So I just think it's, it, it's interesting to mark that, that desirability argument against mm -hmm. it, that it ends up with a fundamentally immoral uh, outcome and not just that it's not uh, feasible, which is the usual reformist argument against smashing the state or smashing capitalism and their unity with one another. Yeah, he gives three um, criteria for an emancipatory social science that I think is important to explicitly say. It's the problem of desirability, as Owen was saying, which is, so this thing that we, we want to bring about, this world we want to build, 
do, do we even want it in the first place? Like, mm-hmm. you know, yeah, that's yeah. like number one. Let's let's satisfy that. But then feasibility, which you know, I take feasibility to mean, you know, something like, is this sustainable? If we were to do the thing that, you know, we want to do, to build these new economic mm-hmm. institutions, you know, again, you're know, talking to uh, one of my friends, question you need to ask. So what do you do with pricing? How does that work? <laughs> um, Sorry, I'm laughing because it's like, imagine a bunch of people who are like getting into power and they're like, wait a minute, we have to fa- we have to prevent inflation. We've never thought about inflation <laughs> yeah, before. Yeah, but there's a fair point, there's a a fair point there, problem. I think, though. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I think most people don't think that because if I'm being kind of curt with it is because I think there might be a lot of people on the left who actually don't expect to win power. Mm-hmm. So why would you have to think about these questions of viability. Can I just and say David Harvey says a similar yeah. thing where he says that the next day after the revolution, we're going to have to run nuclear power stations. Okay. Like who's <laughs> going to be like, how are we going to manage like the nuclear power infrastructure? Like, and I think, yeah, that's another example of. I'm just imagining like, people in the room, just looking around. It's like, is it you? Cause like, I don't know. Any, I don't know anything about that. Like, yeah. what? I think you're right though. That the issue Mark's is that never there's no said e- anything about <laughs> the capital. Yeah. <laughs> but you're right. There's no expectation of winning. So those questions don't feel as pressing. Thing, you know, yeah, we're not going to need to worry about inflation because I mean, we're never going to seize the state. Come on, guys. The <laughs> imminent con- contradictions will re- resolve themselves oh, in love theory. That. <laughs> love that yeah. for but, us. Uh, the the worst answer is you. Know, well, dialectically. Oh God. And then don't say anything else because it's like I. Uh, uh, and the third criteria is viability, and that of course is you know you know the sort of utopian aspect of this is okay. So we can imagine a world where the clouds are made out of cotton candy, money rains from the sky. But as far as I'm aware, we don't have the technology for that. So we should probably be aware of our what we can call our structural institutional constraints. And so a responsible emancipatory social, social science needs to take these three criteria and put them into play in order to, I would put it this way, map the landscape of our social terrain. He wants to move from a theory that tries to predict where society is going to go uh, towards a theory that I think he calls um, structural possibility that attempts to illuminate, well, what is it that we can do actually right now that satisfies these three criteria? And so I, I think that that's, you know, I, I think that's really important, especially because, you know, sometimes I also do get tired of, I know in our Hegel episode we talked about in, invocations of the new and all of that. And it's like, okay, but there are these real constraints we have to run up against. And what are we doing in order to respond and illuminate those constraints? It is very funny to go to write for just the reason you said, Will, right after our Hegel episode, right? We have this thinker of just like radical, like absolute necessity and retrospection. And then Wright turns our attention to the future, right? And says like, what are possibilities? Like what, what is concretely possible given the here and now? Uh, which is just a completely, mm-hmm. it was funny to read these two things back to back. I had to have a completely different brain activate in order even to like think this stuff. Uh, but I think it's really helpful. I love that nesting hierarchy of desirability, vi- viability, and, and achievability. And I think this is maybe, so I had questions for you while reading this and then of right, you know, as well, thinking about utopia and its role in critical social science and social theory. But it seems as though like in the first step, maybe in a first way, and you can tell me if you think I'm off the mark or what other roles the, the idea of utopia has to play here. But in the first step, it's that like desirability question, right? Like what is it that we want our society to look like. And he says, you know, even if, you know, social theory doesn't go to that next step yet, right? And we're not yet at the at the part where we ask about viability. That first moment of just like thinking through desirable worlds is really important, right? And so like, I think also, you know, Lillian, your like account of like what tendencies he's reacting to was super helpful for me. But it also does seem that he's trying to insist that we need this imaginative space, right? And that there's an important function to be fulfilled by you know imagining imagining other kinds of social realities where like that space of possibility has felt closed and foreclosed for especially those of us on the left for for a long time right for for decades literally yeah this is going against the grain of a lot of things that are and were going on in academia at the time. So he has this really wonderful introduction to the book that we read where he kind of just 
lays out without defending it in great detail why his perspective differs from other left-wing thinkers at the moment in which he was writing this, which is that, you know, just against the academic consensus of the moment that like against not only grand narratives like philosophies of history but just like grand design you know he he says that like there's a way in which our vision of what is possible shapes our political activity and our theories and he says that like this skepticism about designs is sort of a self-fulfilling prophecy, probably also for like the classical Marxist tradition. But in that moment, he was reacting to anti-Marxists, like people who just don't want anything to do with totality and they don't want to think about systems or whatever. And he's like, this is actually itself a force in history. And it's a form of cynicism that weakens progressive political forces. And I, I think it might be worth talking about that a little bit because I in some ways the political moment has shifted somewhat so that pe- you know people are more open to socialism they they're more open to thinking about systems now but I think one of the things that's sort of interesting about reading right is that we're not like so well equipped to do this stuff it feels awkward now because we haven't been doing it for like mm-hmm. for the whole neoliberal period we were all about the fragmentation and the novelty and we don't you know we're skeptical of the state in toto and like all of these things and he's giving us these reforms and he's talking about like a, a really like different perspective that i think is guided by a normative vision as well yeah i can think like 10 you know, if I think back to even just 10 years ago, the environment in continental philosophy or broadly in critical theory and social theory was one such that, you know, people would make critical comments and you'd often hear, like somehow say something critical about capitalism, right? Or try to diagnose a particular problem, right? And then someone would say, damn, like, I wish we could do something about that. I'm loosely paraphrasing, paraphrasing, right? And then you'd hear, well, well, I'm not, like, I'm not, get, like, we're not doing programs here. Like, I'm not going to put, I'm not going right. to make, like, a, make a program. And that was a very reflexive, and I think in a lot of milieus it still is, a very reflexive way of responding to that. And I love that there's a kind of simplicity almost, and it may be to a fault, but there's a kind of simplicity in Wright's response to those kinds of dispositions because he'll say, like, why? It's not like having ends, for example, right? Like setting up ends or goals is not inherently totalitarian because of its connection to teleology or something. We'll revise the ends if they become, if if it ends up doing violence to the means and we'll revise that. You know what I mean? Like, this is not, uh, it's not a kind of all or nothing, like fragmentation and contingency or like totality universality and hence like yeah, it's not yeah. the world we live in is not actually manichaean like that yeah, it's exactly. not absolute necessity or total contingency like you can actually try things out and then if they don't seem to be going well you yeah. can do different and things. if it turns out we're like i don't know putting people in in like i don't know like gulags in order to try to like to try to try to achieve <laughs> we'll, a historical we'll like, end oh, okay. we, can, we should stop maybe we can not say, do that yeah, we can say maybe not like, <laughs> that's not what we meant to do okay yeah. let's yeah. Let's walk it back. But this is another exciting thing about what, you know, and maybe um, I know uh, oh, uh, you said like, you know, sort of simplicity to a fault. But, you know, I want to stick up for the simplicity a little bit because he's making things ex- explicit that sometimes I think we all should understand, mm-hmm. but we don't talk about. So I, I like that he says, you know, also a capacious social theory needs to also have a theory that makes room for unintended consequences. Yeah. Yeah. This you know, is a huge part of the picture. It's a huge, yeah. huge, huge claim of it. And and it was it was honestly strange to me reading this because then I I realized how little social theory I read that takes seriously that there can be unintended consequences. It's usually if it didn't. It, it sometimes it sounds like the fallacy, like you know, what is it like? No true Scotsman or something like that. If it didn't work out well, well then we already know that it was a bunch of grifters, fakers. But if I got to do it, right, you know, it would be it would be lit. Yes, and, the voluntarism, yeah. mm-hmm. which is yeah, always also moralism. Mm-hmm. Exactly, and so you know, he's saying that you know, uh, you know, a responsible social theory that has these criteria of desirability, uh, feasibility, or fi- viability and feasibility is also one that's inherently revisionary because it understands that you're trying to build new institutions or trying to uh, have a symbiotic relationship with the state in order to do things. There are going to be things that happen that you did not expect. 
And so you need to have a supple theory that you know, um, constantly remains attuned to, so what's desirable? And that's supposed to guide you normatively about you know, what actions you are taking. But yeah. you know, if you if you get rid of the unintended consequences, then you either have this sort of a uh, voluntarism or this strange functionalism where put A here next to B and social freedom. Yeah. And you know the world is far too complex for that type of, uh, of vision to be, I think, you know, appropriate for political strategy. Yeah, and that strikes me as a much richer way of relating to political strategy. Well, this is not really saying very much because a figure like Adorno, who I wanted to in invoke again, when Utopia comes up in like negative dialectics or in his work on art, he always says it, you know, he's very careful to say because of the ban on graven images in a sense, yeah. right, that we can only think of it negatively. So Utopia is always a kind of negative index of, or, or he'll say, for example, suffering is a kind of negative index of what the good like what the good place might be and really, really insists on that point of negativity. And it seems to be because the alternatives that are, that he's working with are either a teleological and quasi totalitarian, which will become totalitarian vision of like making the future, which engages technological reason and all these, you know, all these different things. That, God, it's yeah. so annoying. That they critique, right? <laughs> I think Adorno is so annoying. This is the second time. I said something else was annoying last episode too. Novelty. But they're just such, there's such a contrast between these two ways of thinking about utopia, which is one is a total ban on envisioning what it might like mm -hmm. look like, or, mm -hmm. oh, if you do envision it, it's going to end up being totalitarian. I know I keep coming back to this point, but I, I can't stress how important it is because I, so much of 20th century thought, I feel like, is very much kind of stratified along the lines of the uh, as this kind of false alternative. I also just want to say real quick, you know, because I'm, I'm now thinking more about what Gil said a few minutes ago. I also wonder if it it's not always actually obvious what is desirable and that does deserve our critical attention. Mm -hmm. I don't know if we should trust our immediate intuitions about what a desirable society looks like when, you know, uh, in my work on, on Utopia, and this is why I, I really like, you know, what Wright is doing, part of what Utopia is supposed to do is denaturalize the terms of the debate that we've simply accepted as you know so obviously the type of society we want is where i go to work from nine to five and maybe i get to see a nice movie on the weekend maybe that's just freedom and maybe the new york times you know would be like that is freedom yes isn't that cruella <laughs> get to go watch cruella and disney's rehabbing yeah, the image of a like, puppy you know, murdering villain cruella and you know, get Girl to boss. see you know, her off oh, you beat me to the joke. Shit. I need to stop pausing. Ah, but I, I don't know if that's immediately obvious. And so, you know, maybe you know, to push the conversation a little bit further, or another thing that Wright is responding to is he thinks that there are particular inadequacies in, in Marx's theory, not Marxist, well, maybe Marxist, but also Marx, the man's theory itself that need to be attended to. And so this almost feels like a moment of, okay, all right, kids. Time to grow up a little bit. It turns out things aren't going the way that we expected it. You know, the intensifying of crises hasn't led to the downfall of capitalism. Class capacity hasn't, you know, increased. And so part of what he is doing is like, okay, so let's come to terms again and say, so what is it? that we want and that we need. And we can often be very confused about what our needs are. I don't think that's too much to say. And so part of this is meant to try to make clear, so where is the origin of the things that we are suffering? What could our freedom look like? What would it mean to be a socially integrated being, someone who could participate politically, et cetera? Yeah, I think that what is happening with that is I think you said it exactly the right way, that when I think about Eric Wright, I think about somebody who realized that socialist scholars needed to grow up. Like he was in a milieu in which historical materialism was dying in a, in a way, and he wanted to make it scientific over and against the arguments that historical materialism couldn't be scientific, like the more philosophical arguments. And the more social scientific arguments from people on the left, Marxists, who thought that 
trying to do social science in the way that he's doing it would be like succumbing to bourgeois social categories or something like that. Um, bourgeois social science. So there's all these like weird reasons why people on the left didn't think historical materialism belonged as like a serious social scientific method. And he sees himself as saying, no, 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 we don't have any reason why we can't do this, why it, why we have to be so skeptical of, in quotes, bourgeois social science. We don't have a secret method. We, are, mm. we have a social theory that tells us how the world works. It could be better. But if we think our theory is correct, then we should be able to test it empirically. We should be able to use all the quantitative methods that the bourgeois social scientists do, and we should be able to come up with better theories. And in his book, Class Counts, he does that. He's like very, she's quite successful in a number of different ways. Um, but I think that the reason I'm saying this is that I think it reflects on why when Gil was saying it feel, felt I had to reframe my, like reorient my brain to read this after Hegel is because this is, these are the bad positivist Marxists. Okay, like analytical <laughs> analytical Marxism is the the Marxism that was like, okay, that didn't go well, like the inverting of Hegel. <laughs> and we don't like when he says we don't have secret tools to understand mm. the world that are over and against and so different and loop de loopy, like compared to what the bourgeois social scientists are doing. I'm going to humble myself and figure out what the hell is going on. And that's what people start to call like a positivist turn in the Marxist tradition. And it's based on some arguments about what he thinks Marx got wrong. And I think that that's worth taking very seriously because often this approach gets ridiculed for its just, it's not deep enough. It sees things on the surface. It's not dialectical. Mm. But you have to actually respond to his arguments about what was wrong with the Marxist theory of history to begin with if you want to come at it like that. So mm. I maybe, sorry to go on like this, but maybe it would be helpful for like us to be like, what is, what's it, what is he accusing Marxism of, of doing badly and getting wrong? Yeah, I think that's a good place to go. You know, because he, he lays out in, in the book a number of theses about what the issue with the Marxist theory of transformation is. And they are roughly something like, you know, the Mar Marxists thought that capitalism would become impossible, right? That it would, of its own internal dynamics, it would end up destroying itself. And so there's a modal point there about the necessity of capitalism's, uh, about capitalism's self-destruction. Marxism claimed that it would produce its own grave diggers. I'm caricaturing, right, to an extent here, right? But Marxism... So is he... Uh, Exactly. He is. Yeah, too, he is. Yeah. He claimed that it would produce its own grave diggers, right? That eventually proletarianization would create a class that would have both the organization and the capacities and the disposition to overthrow, uh, to overthrow capitalism. And that revolution would ensue from that. And then the last thing, which I think is really where his, the, the majority of his polemical like attention goes at least in this at least in this work is the idea that the socialism that comes about right on the way to communism right the socialism that comes about from revolutionary transformation and this is he says is utopian in the pejorative sense that it would end up changing human beings whose egotism and whose antisocial behavior are a result of are not human nature right but they're a result of capitalism and so once we start doing socialism is the claim, then there will be almost a kind of quasi-anthropological transformation that will take place. And that new human being that results from uh, that results from our kind of socialist socialist practices and institution building, they just won't even want the state anymore, right? They 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 will they will be done with it, right? It will end up li again. I'm it's being like a light switch. Ex yeah, no, exactly. Yeah, yeah. I'm being a little bit like simplistic here, but this is the this is the claim. And whether that's right about Marx or not, uh, I do think. That last point, right, that the idea that uh, this is something to really struggle with, and I do really struggle with it, like the extent I do believe that it's a certain set of historical conditions that create the kind of egotism and antisocial atomism that are an obstacle towards social transformation. How you draw the line between to what extent that is like, I'm really glad he poses this question to what extent it is a result of capitalist social formation, and to what extent it is a result, not just necessarily of nature, but of other historical forces, of things that won't go away once we, once we change the mode of production or once we alter 
our economic configuration. I don't really have, I don't have an answer to that, but it's something that I don't think is, that we're pressed often enough to think about, or at least I don't feel like I'm pressed often enough to think about, and I'm glad he does that. Yeah, that is a tough question. Because I like you, Owen, like, I, I agree in principle, right, that like all of these sort of antisocial and egoistic characteristics seem to me to be resultant from the, the capitalist mode of production. But like, I don't know. I don't maybe, my, maybe I've read too much Hobbes in this <laughs> way. My word. I still have some worries about it in, in the background. You know? <laughs> I don't know how much we want to get waylaid on this because I, I had pretty serious problems with the presentation of historical materialism in the book that he critiques. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm not sure how much we want to like dig into that, but like at the very basic, well, give like, us a quick sense. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. The very like first thing, right? Like he, his claim is that, and some of this I think is like very interesting framing, and some of it I find to be kind of objectionable. His claim is that like you know Marx's kind of great ingenuity and brilliance was in not directly trying to formulate or articulate alternatives to capitalism, but of demonstrating its impossibility in the long run, right? Like that's what he claims is the the aim of the book Capital. And I'm just not sure that that's true. Um, I'm not sure that I buy this interpretation of the crisis theory. Um, I think in particular, I'm not sold on his interpretation of the rate of profit to fall, but like that's probably way too in the weeds for us. Um, But just like the basic point I'd want to make about it is that, you know, Marx is demonstrating that there are real contradictions in it to or internal to the capitalist mode of production and like, you know, civil society that grows on top of it. But I take it to be like, you know, kind of threading a needle with like the sort of series on dialectics we've been doing that like Marx is at least a dialectical enough thinker to like say that contradictions are real and that they exist. And that like, you know, one of the sort of differences between the kind of like thinking that we get with someone like Marx after Hegel and previous sort of thinkers of possibility is that I'm not. I'm not totally sure that like the the demonstration of there being real contradictions is a demonstration of something's impossibility or the necessity of its change. Does that make sense? And so like Say it again. Y- yeah, what I was the saying is that, the last part is yeah, I said that um uh, I'm not sure that with Marx demonstrating that there are real contradictions is the same as demonstrating that something is impossible or that it has to change, right? Like mm-hmm. I'm not I'm not totally sure that I buy that mm-hmm. that step, mm-hmm. right? At the same time like I will 100% own that a lot of the tradition of so-called historical materialism after Marx totally has all of these features that he's describing and that like, you know, mm. a more adequate and empirically informed, right? Like one thing to say here is that Marx was a social scientist, hundred percent, right? Like he, and he changed his positions on things as new information came to light. And I think Wright is just pushing us to, you know, to, to live in that tradition instead of kind of, you know, worshiping at the feet of the, the the great thinkers who came before us and trying to make it scientific. Like one of the questions that I had was like, in what sense is this critical social theory scientific? I, was, I don't know if you all had like thoughts about that. Yeah. So, you know, um, something that we haven't mentioned. So there's the, the desirability, feasibility um, and viability. But, you know, he also goes on to say that, you know, what a social scientific theory of emancipation needs is a theory of social reproduction, a theory of, you know, contradictions and, and gaps. There, there are four things, right? Uh, social reproduction, uh, gaps and contradictions, trajectories of unintended social chains, and transformative strategies. So what we haven't said much about, and I think this is starting to get to what Owen was saying, is, you know, well, it seems like with a theory of social reproduction, that's something that, you know, you constantly just, you know, you have to do again. That, you know, reading someone in, like, you know, 1773 and being like, I've got a theory of social reproduction right there. I just don't know if that's going to cut it. And so for those of you at home, social reproduction seems to, to be about, you know, how we reproduce our, our habits, our practices, the roles that, that we play in different contexts, what we, um, what we are coerced to act like in order to uh, accomplish certain goals in our life. You know, for instance, if you're at work, what keeps you working hard is your boss might walk by. And so you have to show that you're a good worker. But it can also be uh, things that are more diffuse, like you know, racial practices or sexist practices, that these can be um, impl- uh, passive or active. And so if you don't have a theory of social reproduction, if you don't understand you know, the habits, the needs, and the wants that, that people have developed, then if you just try to like move that to the side as you know, immaterial and we're, we're just going to do change, then you're not going to actually understand how to reach people. 
You're not going to understand. He even says somewhere, I believe in this book, no one is saying things like racism and sexism are completely reducible to capitalism. Like no one's saying once you get over capitalism, those things just go away. So those you know, represent other lines of force in social reproduction that you have to deal with. But of course, rights positions, dealing with those things would be a lot easier if we didn't have capitalism to deal with. But you know, if you don't actually do that work to try to understand, well, so why are people developing these habits, these, this way of understanding themselves, if you're just assuming it and assuming that they'll just go along because you have the morally superior argument, then you're fooling yourself. You're fooling yourself. And so it seems to me, you know, you all can again, correct me if I'm wrong, Wright wants us to get back to actually figuring the world out. How does it actually work? And that we can't just go from our, our pre-reflective intuitions, no matter how much we try to thought experiment in our heads. Sorry for that dig at some analytic philosophers, but I just don't think thought experiments are going to cut it with something nope. like this. I just, I just don't. I know a lot of analytic philosophers work with social science, so so. Y'all are great. Well, I think the, ju the justification for the, the scientific t turn, and I think he's very, quite skeptical about dialectics and imminent critique. I think his, his justification for this isn't just that like, there's no value in seeing, there's no value in the social criticism that can arise from that. It's just that it's not sufficient. So like, when he distinguishes between the task of scientific knowledge of how the like he's how the world works like i think that's kind of important and it's hard to play that out in like a, a philosophical sense because you actually need a theory of reproduction to be social reproduction and then you have to ha deal with it scientifically to talk about well what you know, counterfactuals exist. Why is it this way and not another way? Um, and you, and that, and that's an empirical question a lot of the time. He argues that like criticism and social philosophy can't substitute for that. Mm -hmm. And we have a Marxist tra tradition that seems to not understand that it can't substitute for that. So that's how you produce this um, logic that whether it's fair to Marx him himself or not, where you start seeing this instability and these contradictions, and then you project a theory of society onto the future that doesn't reflect the, the actual development of those contradictions at all, because you haven't stopped to think what is reproducing itself. And actually, there's a really big problem with how Marxists have thought about things in the past, which is that they've emphasized instability and crisis. And mm. I think, right, I mean, there is instability and there is crisis. But that's a, actually not a theory of social reproduction because what makes capitalism reproduces itself is it is stable. It does reproduce itself. I, I fall back and forth between whether or not some kind of imminent critique is compatible with this way of thinking about things. But I think his contribution is to, to shed light on like that deficit and why it's prevented us from thinking about you know, the real utopias in the way that he mm -hmm. wants to. Why do you think imminent critique might be incompatible with that emphasis that, that you're placing on empirical research? I don't know if it is, actually. I, I think that it just strikes him. It's something that he thinks hasn't been useful for the things that he wants to do. I'm not sure if it is actually incompatible, but I think what he's doing is identifying a, a weakness with that strategy. Perhaps like there's a way of separating some different registers or using a theory of social reproduction to develop such a critique. It's just not what he was seeing at his time. And I think it wasn't his focus. Yeah. This is, there's like a way in which he's, you know, like you said, time to, time to wake up, you know, time to grow up right to this Marxist tradition. I was thinking about how idealist it sounded, you know, like, um, and I'm thinking we, we just did our Hegel episode. And one of the anecdotes that's really funny is uh, someone says in some, lecture in response to Hegel, who's just said that the actual is rational or whatever. And someone like points out like, oh, but empirically that thing you said was wrong. And he was like, well, so much the worse for the state of affairs, right? Like, like, the, <laughs> and, and I, think that, I love that. It's very funny. But I think that like, in a way, writes saying to Marxists, like, you're doing that move, you know, you're, you're clinging to a theory that has not been borne out by the empirical uh, evidence and like you know what what of your so-called materialism then right like what about this is in fact a scientific approach to something like history if you're going to stand there and say like like you said it's a no true scotsman type thing like you know 
oh well uh, oh that wasn't socialism never mind uh you know real socialism would have actually worked um you know but we don't and have to rethink any of our bases and you know it because it would have worked and if thus it, it would have been socialism if it had worked it but would it have been socialism work, right? exactly so yeah. like have you what, read my book right whatever <laughs> we want to call like moving the goalposts like that it's definitely not science right <laughs> Yeah, it turns out there's only so much bargaining you get to do with reality. Yeah. And, you know, and uh, so I wanted to uh, read this quote that he has. This is, you know, part of a theory of social reproduction. I think it, you know, goes along with this uh, conversation, 285. Every day when people go to work, they act on the basis of their expectations about how other people behave and what will be the consequences of their actions. So I see another role of social theory, which is it, it's not even about maybe this is why I find something you know, really annoying about the type of critical theory that you know um, simply says like racism lives in people's heads and you know people can't help but be that way because it doesn't take seriously that a lot of the actions that we do are because of the expectations that have been raised about the type of society we will see. And so on another aspect of social theory, it seems, is actually getting clear on what people's expectations are of how other people react to them. And if you want to be something emancipatory, how do you start to change people's expectations? Well, you don't just change it by changing their minds, but you actually start to you know, outlay a theory of transformation that would allow their expectations to change, and then the, those new expectations meet with some type of success. But it seems as if, you know, sometimes those two things get, like, disconnected. Let's just change people's expectations. Change your mind. Or, well, okay, let's not worry about people's expectations. Let's just change the world, and other mm -hmm. people will go along with it. Mm. But to actually, like, you'll be able to detail. This is why, you know, working with things like racism, it's difficult. It's difficult because how much of it is about navigating what you expect other people to react to you as and how much of it is these firmly held beliefs. And so if we can actually you know, start to map that out, then we can start to lead the way towards something different by changing the conditions under which those expectations are formulated. But if you don't understand people as these expectant creatures and you know, whose expectations change given their conditions, then you'll just be repeating the same thing over and over again that is you know, the worst type of idealism. Totally. And like, you know, it turns out that what is politically possible is historically shifting, right? We can't talk about just things being like possible in general for a given social formation, but like, you know, where are we right now? What is possible given these concrete conditions? And right, I think correctly points out that like what people believe about possibility is a determinant factor in what is actually concretely possible, right? Which is part of why, which I just think is like an incredibly like important insight. And something that we often lose sight of, right? At the same time that we don't want to like fall back into this weird like idealism where it's like, well, just change hearts and minds and leave material structures intact. Like that's obviously inadequate. But also mm -hmm. like, yeah, what people think can happen changes how they act and how they try to transform the world or not, right? And so like that's, a, that's part of the struggle as well. If we want to use a concrete example, and again, the, again, to avoid the idealism, we might talk about the, the, the union drive that happened in Bessemer, Alabama. Mm -hmm. You know, why didn't it, it work? Well, on the one hand, you could do something like, well, you know, people are inherently anti-union or the union had a lot of black folks and they were like, nah, -uh, that's not going to be me. Or it might be that you don't expect something like that to succeed. You're worried you could lose your, your, your job voting a particular type of way. And this is even bracketing all the shenanigans Amazon was getting up to to break that up. But, you know, if you're not meeting the problem there, then, you know, one, that seems to be a clear moment where actually figuring out why people hold the expectations that they have, whether it's due to material constraints or maybe people do misrecognize situations. You know, there are moments where you misrecognize there might have been an opportunity. I know it's weird to talk about that because it didn't happen. But, you know, they actually get clear on that. It shows that, well, people often do things based on what they expect to happen. And if you can't shift that, then don't expect them to do something different. I, I think he, he actually makes a helpful distinction between the way that the kinds of emancipatory social science he envisions is different from, like, the hard sciences, right? Because he says in the hard sciences, the beliefs that we have about the kinds of principles and like laws that are in question doesn't affect the the actual knowledge that's generated, right? Like the beliefs one has about like I don't know laws of gravity, for example, 
don't, or at least this is his claim. I'm not enough of a philosopher of scientist. I'm sure there'd be some people out there that, that would dispute this. But the idea is that that the laws uh, of gravity are can be bargained with. Yeah. Well, I don't know. <laughs> Who knows? <laughs> I love it. Okay. No. Um, sorry, sorry. I don't, it's those postmodern uh, philosophers of science out there that are ruining Western civilization. You can't forget about them. <laughs> They're the yeah. way. Soon we'll have um, no more gravity. And yeah, the Canadians like, sending robots to the moon. Oh, God. Don't even get me started on that. Canada getting into the space race of 1960. I love it. I love that for yeah. Canada. But, but, but in any case, our, our beliefs about what's possible in the natural world don't affect what's possible in the natural world. Whereas our beliefs, as he claims, right, our beliefs about what's possible in the social world have a very important effect on what actually is possible in the social world, right? And that's what fundamentally distinguishes, right, the natural sciences from the social sciences, is that what you called, Will, the structural possibility. Yeah, yeah, how do we raise people's expectations? And I, I worry phrasing it that way, but I want to I want to phrase it as plainly as possible because I worry about phrasing it that way because one could say raise expectations, you also raise the possibility of disappointment. On the one end, I'm like, I feel like so many of us are just already living lives of disappointment. So like, what could the harm be? But doesn't on, that come with I the take... territory of utopian thinking to an extent? That risk, you know, the risk that you're going to disappoint, that people are going to be disappointed. Yeah, no, that's a that's a, a constitutive risk, but you know, I think it's it's important to raise people's expectations because it is from raising those expectations that they can start to enunciate, wait a second, what if it what if this is not the only way our social relations could be? If I mm. want to be more metaphorical, what if this is not the only way the world could be? But if you don't even get to that point where people are starting to envision something else beyond just getting by, beyond, you know, just surviving, but changing those, you know, those background conditions of what my life could be, then you're not going to go anywhere. And we're gonna, just going to be stuck with this hope that uh, a good enough politician in the United States will do that vision for us. And it turns out no politician is good enough to do that because also most of them aren't interested in doing that. <laughs> yeah. I, 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 I'm, I'm not calling anybody out. Your favorite politician's great. Don't worry. But I'm just saying we can't mortgage it all to, you know, all to you know, those who are already in power. I think you know, we we need a type of social science that can actually say you know there is room for us to change our expectations here, or here are the reasons why we can't change our expectations. That might even be um, helpful in and of itself. Yeah, just one thing I want to add to that is that I like that he points out that there's a tendency, like you know, we all are familiar with a, a certain risk on the left or within progressive like visions of of politics to say that we don't want to fall into a kind of mechanistic view of history. Right, like we don't want to we don't want to see social progress as something that's going to mechanically unfold because of internal contradictions in our social world. But he says it's very important that we also understand, and he thinks that folks on the left don't do this enough, is to remember that that's just as true for the ruling order as it is mm. for the kind of order. You know what yeah. I mean? It's also not mechanically guaranteed that this particular political and social order will be able to reproduce itself. So you know, there's there he's. Even though he's critical of Marx on the idea that there's a mechanical necessity to the advent of socialism, right? He's also saying, well, it's also true that it's not, yeah, just not mechanically necessary that we're just going to continue on like this. And so it's very important on that level of expectations to understand that even while they might be utopian, right, while they might seem impossible, there are issues with the obstacles that face mm -hmm. the creation of the utopia we want as well, right? And we should exploit those obstacles that the ruling class faces as it tries to reproduce its domination. Yeah, there's a difference between, I think the helpful distinction he makes about the kind of social science he's interested in and that is how he distinguishes between a theory of social reproduction and a theory of social orders. So mm -hmm. for him, a theory of social reproduction has a different set of counterfactual statements that it's dealing with than a theory of social orders. So for him, a theory of social orders is the kind of thing you get with like meta theories like structural functionalism, like Talcott Parsons or Habermas. So like if you read the theory of communicative action, you get like a meta theory about how modern societies achieve social and system integration. And he argues that like 
Emancipatory social science has a different set of questions, which is the counterfactual of social transformation. So because there's a kind of anthropological claim that like people will contest domination and oppression, which is if there is a claim about human nature in the Marxist tradition, I think that's it. They, people don't like being dominated and oppressed, and they do things about it. So you, the, the counterfactual is why aren't they doing things about it in one way, and why are they doing it this way instead? And so what that requires is micro-foundations to the social theory. And this is the positivism part that people don't like um, if you're a part of the dialectical or imminent tradition, because you have to figure out what the mechanisms are, the dominant compulsions. And of course, there'll be many different compulsions, but what is it that is kind of creating imperatives to make one set of decisions instead of another? And it's not quite the same as a rational choice theory. Um, I think it's just like, why do certain pressures impinge on people more than other pressures? And um, how does the system create preference formation? And what kind of expectations does it set up? So there's kind of a set of value claims that like value sort of emerges in the system. People have different values. They have to prioritize them, but some will get, um, there's a negative selection against some and for others. And so this kind of micro foundational aspect of it, once you get this, then you can start figuring out system patterns and trends. And so that's how you get the unintended consequences. Um, so that's how you would get to the unintended consequences is that you would be able to see how people acting on certain imperatives, compulsions, pressures, how it amounts to a certain way to solve problems, and then how that congeals into a new set of compulsions and pressures. And then you can kind of project what effect is that likely to have and I, th yeah. I think that, like, thinking about it that way, again, that's the bourgeois social science part because the people that normally do that are people who do, like, rational choice theory or um, try to have, like, really static conceptions of moral psychology, like in neoclassical economics. And so this is what I think has created the perception that Eric Wright is more conservative than, like, the imminent dialectical tradition. Yeah, I just want to add to this conversation. You, know, I, I don't know if this counts as a hopeful note, but I, I like what he says about also understanding this builds off of what Owen was saying as well, that you know, understanding the ruling class and the ruling class system, you have to also understand that this is an extraordinarily complex piece of machinery. And so he writes, the first and perhaps most fundamental source of limits and gaps of social re reproduction is complexity. Social systems, particularly when they are built around deep cleavages and forms of oppression, have multiple requirements for their stable reproduction. And in general, there's no reason to believe that these requirements are entirely consistent. And so what I take him to be saying here is, you know, um, let's take the United States as an example. There is not only, you know, class exploitation, there's, you know, racism, there's sexism, there's all variety of oppressions that all are trying to be grouped into this ideal of, but this United States machinery is functioning well. And there's no reason to think that that's just going to happen smoothly, automatically, et cetera. And so I think also an aspect of this emancipatory you know, social science is so where are the contradictions and gaps that start to reveal how the machinery is, is, is rickety, where, it's, you know, where you can exploit it, and that can be interstitially, symbiotically, or a moment of rupture. But if you already assume that, I don't want to put in this agonistic way the people you're struggling against, but the system you're struggling against is completely coherent, is completely, you know, perfect. It's a, you know, not the reference Max Weber, it's, a, it's an iron cage. What are you going to do about it? Then you've already lopped off the anticipatory part of social theory, and now it's just strict diagnosis about telling people why you can't expect anything different. That this is just, you know, it's going to keep rolling no matter what you do, but at least you know. And I don't want to read a social theory. It's like, and you know, the more you know, right? <laughs> Here's why so, you can never be free. Book over. Like, right. you know, I don't know. Maybe a this might be like, but, you know. No, maybe like, I love freedom. Come on. You know I love freedom. I know. I know. That's me being unfair.
Thank and you. so, you know, that's what I really got from this, you know, this Eric Wright text where, you know, it's about allowing, you know, signs to uh, illuminate possibilities that do exist here and now. And that we do ourselves no favors taking other people's words for it, especially if they've been dead for 200, 300 years about, you know, what we can expect. But also don't take, you know, the word for it of those in the ruling class who say, well, just trust us. That thing you want just is is not possible. Like, let yeah. us manage for you what your expectations will be. And it seems like this type of theory is deeply critical of that and saying, well, no, let's actually go figure it out for ourselves. And, you know, produce testable claims in the community where other people can see, you know, what we are doing. Yeah, he takes a dig at Foucault in that context, or at Foucauldians. He doesn't actually engage Foucault's work, but uh, he says his example of figures that he thinks have too much reverence almost for the ruling class, like too much reverence for, or a kind of implied reverence for how how overwhelming and total their domination is. Uh, he says, you know, the issue with, the issue in the kind of Foucauldian discourse is you get into a picture of the administration of the world that is so comprehensive and so meticulous, right? Down to like the most meticulous elements of our bodily and individual the life. The microphysics of your anatomy, right? The, exactly. The microphysics of power, right? That it, and you end up basically reifying a system of power that is so all-encompassing that how could you ever envision transforming it? Because that's his... That's his goal here, right? To lay out a theory of transformation. How could you ever lay, you know, how could you ever envision transforming it? What you end up with are these individual practices of the self, individual acts of resistance. Like he doesn't say refer to those particularly, right? But, but that is that's where I think that he's not wrong that there is that risk, especially in a kind of we don't get into Foucault, but kind of later Foucault, that you end up with, well, you know what, it's not actually possible to transform things on any kind of, that's all meta-narratives and powers of super like comprehensive and total in its, you know, in its reach. And so we get a kind of individual practices. We're going to start speaking differently and, um, you know, very amenable or, to or very don't amenable let to me not make this joke. Or we're going to pay someone to tell us how we're white and racist at our race <laughs> yeah, to yeah, our yeah. race to dinner brunches or something like that. Which yeah. that's the best you can do. A and poor substitute for seizing the means of production, in my opinion. I have to give Liam a shout out on Twitter when he was like, I, this makes me so mad equally at like the hucksterism and also these stupid, stupid people who deserve, <laughs> who who des deserve to have their money taken from them. <laughs> <laughs> like, honestly, honestly, you should have your money taken. Oh, like, if you were doing this, uh, you know what? You get yeah, but, what you get. But this what? is what you get. If you don't have a theory of transformation, you get Robin D'Angelo. You get, you get people, you know what I mean? You get people that are, like, very primed for doing the work on them, on their individual selves, because we have so evacuated any imagination of what transforming things might look like let alone any kind of scientific or un understanding of what that might entail, social scientific understanding of what that might entail, that like, yeah, I mean, what's left? D what's left is doing the work on yourself. You know? do, like, do, like, no, what's left is just doing the work, which, wow, I guess we're never going to abolish work. It's just yeah, exactly, no I know. work. That's the worst part about doing the work. Is like, are you serious? Like, the solution has more work involved? Like, fuck. I just feel like this would be like doing to ourselves what Foucault never hoped we would. I feel like he wanted yeah, better for I, us. I think that's the, that's, oh, for sure. I, yeah. I actually love that. That is such a wonderful note to end on. I like, you know, obviously this is not about Foucault, but I think he wanted better for us. And wherever Foucault is, <laughs> yeah. he's looking at us going like, my God. God, y'all, y'all suck at this. Like, seriously. <laughs> well, he should he shouldn't have betrayed his 1970s self, which was way more lit. <laughs> I agree. I was, I was rereading the history of sexuality um, for I was teaching it, and I was like, this book is super dope. I love this book. I wish everything stayed just like this. Oh yeah, 71 forever. to 76 were like just that's an amazing. I like that person a lot. That's a great Foucault. But I don't know. Look, I can't speak for the rest. As we all get older, we lose some things. It's it's the name of the game. That's <laughs> <It's> true. <laughs> well, that does it for us today. So I just wanted for our listeners to maybe close by giving a little acknowledgement of Eric Allenwright. He was um, he passed away, I think, two years ago of cancer, and. I think especially for maybe philosophers who aren't familiar with his work, because as we've been 
saying. He's a social scientist, a sociologist. I think that he holds a sort of special place in left-wing academia because, as I was saying throughout the episode, he tried to do things in the academy that were very unpopular at the time, and he was very persistent from the 1970s all the way until his death in 2019, and he kept the kind of rigor in trying to understand social reproduction, class, and capitalism alive, and he created um, a cohort of students beneath him that have since had their own careers and have now, you know, taught their own classes and have their own students emerging. And I think that the fruits of rights labor were probably underappreciated for several decades. And I think that they're they're reemerging. And he did something for us, which is to try to revive historical materialism when the rest of the academy was sort of like rotting into idealism and sort of slamming Marxism for its inadequacies, he was like, yep, there are some problems here. I'm going to try to fix them. And that's what we should do in the future. And I first encountered Eric Allenwright when I took a graduate course in sociology at NYU with Vivek Chibber. And I had only taken philosophy courses up until that time. And I walked into this seminar. It was called Contemporary Marxist Theory. And I remember we started reading Marx and Capital, and then we read Eric Allenwright. And I was, the only word to describe this is that I was so humbled um, that he had such a robust theoretical framework, that he was not a philosopher, and that I was never going to encounter in philosophy anything like that. Um, And that there had been so many enriching developments in the social sciences because of what he did. I committed myself then to learning as much as I possibly could. And I think the best way to describe his contribution, both empirical and normative, is when he talks about developing a socialist compass for your research that animates it. And I, I think that what he did took a lot of intellectual strength. So I just wanted to recognize him. Um, If people haven't heard of Eric Wright, they should pick up his books, Class Counts, Envisioning Real Utopias. He has various articles also on gender equality and stuff like that. So thanks, everybody. New episodes of What's Left of Philosophy come out every two weeks, wherever you get your podcasts. Please like and subscribe. Follow us on Twitter at Left of Phil. If you like what we're doing, consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash philosophy. And please, please, please give us five-star reviews and leave comments on whatever podcast app you use. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you next time. Bye, everyone. Bye. See ya.